I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 this morning. Matthew 15, I want to greet any of you who are joining us by live stream. Glad to have you. We are studying the topic of legalism, been talking about that for a few weeks, and it's from the text in Matthew 15. It's what Jesus is addressing, but as he addresses it, it does come um, to us in practical ways that we talked about some last time. Let me just continue to uh, bring up perhaps what are some controversial topics. One this morning, and that is um, a topic that is addressed by a preacher, and I want you to try to guess who the preacher is who's saying this. It's a quote uh, that I think is relevant. The common arguments against public schools... Education appeared to me to be based on forgetfulness of our Lord's teaching about the heart. Unquestionably, there are many evils in public school, however carefully conducted, we must expect it. But it is not less true that there are great dangers in private education or in dangers in, uh, that are in quite um, formidable ways, as many which beset a boy at public school. Of course, no universal rule can be laid down, but to suppose that boys educated at public schools must turn out ill and boys educated at home must turn out well is surely not wise. It is forgetting our Lord's doctrine that the heart is the principal source of evil. Without a change of heart, a boy may be kept at home and yet learn all manner of sin. What do you think that was written? It was 1857 is when it was written. It was written by uh, R.C. or I'm sorry, J.C. Ryle, J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool. And I kind of just do that to say nothing new under the sun in terms of the issues that we're trying to protect kids from and trying to help them out, trying to put them in the best possible situation, whether homeschool or Christian school or public school. And I'm not promoting that you send all your kids to public school per se, but we dare not neglect the heart. Listen to what our, um, J.C. Rowe goes on to say. He said, we ought to remember in training the, and education of children, in all our management, we must never forget that the seeds of all mischief and wickedness are in the hearts, in their hearts. And if it is not enough to keep boys and girls at home and to shut out every outward temptation, they carry within them a heart ready to, for any sin. Until the heart is changed, they are not safe, whatever we do. When children do wrong, it is common practice to lay all the blame on bad companions, but it is mere ignorance, blindness, and foolishness to do so. Bad companions are a great evil, no doubt, but no companion teaches a boy or a girl half as much as their own hearts will suggest to them, unless they are renewed by the Spirit. The beginning of all wickedness is within. Listen to this. If parents were half as diligent praying for their children's conversion... As they are in keeping them from bad company, their children would turn out far better than they do. Ryle's reading our mail in a lot of ways. It's a diagnostic uh, that really points back to the true source of what's wrong with any of us and all of us, and that's our own hearts. How bad is your heart? How evil and wicked is your heart? That's what our text is going to itemize for us. And I would just say this. Our hearts are as bad as the Bible says that they are. They're that bad. And we need to look in the mirror of the word of God and face it and say, this is how bad our hearts really are. Every area of our lives might not, may not be on full tilt as 
with the other person. I mean, if you measure uh, your sin against others, but the DNA of evil is the same in every heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, do you remember these words? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, speaking of Saul, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? On the heart, on the heart. I've been talking about the idea of not dealing with ourselves from the outside in, trying to reform ourselves from religious exercise, but to work from the inside out. We can't work from the inside out if we don't know how ugly it is in there and what we have to work with. If you're taking notes, uh, the bigger outline is, do you understand? Do you understand the difference between living outside in or inside out? And last week, we kind of used an umbrella point of living outside in, and that was verses 10 through 14. It's what Jesus is exposing. Listen as I read, just to kind of get a running start. Living outside in. And he called the people, verse 10, to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father is not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Uh, What the Pharisees, in other words, were promoting, what they were putting forth for people to buy into was a total sham. It was a cover-up scandal to say, ignore what's on the inside, ignore the source of your sin, and try to reform yourself on the outside. And by the way, the way they were tempting people to do that was to say, you guys were neglecting the washing of hands. It was an extra biblical law. It wasn't even part of the Levitical law to the general populace. But he was saying, look, you ate all this bread and you didn't wash your hands. And so you are guilty and you need to deal with that. Jesus hold them accountable. He's trying to be the blind leading the blind astray. Get people to be blind to the fact that the source of their sin is their heart, not their doing or not doing stuff. Showing up to church or not showing up to church. Um, you know, name your pet thing. My kids go to Christian school, so I'm fine. Or they, they're homeschooled, so I'm fine spiritually. I'm doing a good job, so I must be right with God. I pray before every meal like we talked about last week. And so that makes me right with God. I'm praying publicly, so that's my public witness. That's what I'm washing myself with, and I'm fine. When the Pharisees are trying to tempt people to think that way, Jesus brings everybody back to the source of the problem, which is a sinful heart, a sinful heart. In fact, he indicts the Pharisees and says, leave them alone. Let them alone. That's the ultimate thing you don't want God to say about you. I'm going to leave you alone because it's the indictment of reprobation. I'm leaving you to judgment. Verse 15 changes directions here and it moves from indicting or exposing the outward end to really going to the real source of the problem which is to work from the inside out and look at verse 15 that picks up on our text but Peter said to him explain the parable to us and Jesus said are you also still without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is verses 15 through 20, and this picks up with our second big picture point. It's living inside out. And what Jesus is doing here is he's responding to Peter. Peter, according to Mark's account, Mark 7, it says they went inside a house at that point. So they're in a private setting with the disciples. It's good that they're private because Jesus is astonished by the fact that Peter is saying, can you explain this parable to us? Can you explain what you just were trying to say earlier in the general crowd about food going in and something coming out? And I don't really, I'm not clear on what you just explained. And he's talking about verse 11, talking about, you know, what goes into the mouth That's not what defiles a person, it's what comes out of a mouth. So I I don't really understand what you're talking about. And Jesus, I think, at least in his heart, was throwing up his hands, just going, are you still without understanding, verse 16? I mean, he had been with them for perhaps two years at this point. you, You still don't get what I'm talking about? This is the bewitching power of legalism, how blind we can become so quick to say, I'm not right with God because I've missed something. I haven't done enough. I haven't given enough. I haven't shown up enough. I haven't, I've been doing this too much. I need to pull back on this. And it keeps you out here rather than dealing with what's going on in here. And Jesus is going, do you still not understand that we need to deal with the heart? Um, a subpoint here under point two, living inside out, is debunking the wrong problem. We're de- he's debunking what's wrong. Jesus is asked by Peter to explain or interpret the parable. Interpret what you're teaching us. Please do that. And Jesus is exasperated at that point, similar to how he responded to Philip when Philip said, Show us the Father. Show us the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. He's like, well, okay, well, show them to us. And Jesus is saying, have I been with you so long? I mean, look into my face. You you find God by looking at me because Jesus is God on earth. Have I been with you so long? It's that same sort of moment of, let me put this back on you. You men need to take some time and reflect upon your own heart. Don't be blinded by the blind false teachers, these con artists. Are you still vulnerable to them? These naturally minded people, don't do it. Don't be duped into believing you need to still keep dietary laws, eat the clean animals, not the unclean animals, do washings. Don't believe the hype of separation is, is externally is the way to God. That, that was never the point of the civil or ceremonial law. Jews would tout the fact of their good health. It was even said that they, uh, they were set apart from certain kinds of cancer or, or certain kinds of um, uncleanness or disease because of their, their adherence to the law. Some of that might have been true, but none of that is dealing with the heart. In verse 17, Jesus takes it further to the heart and he explains his analogy. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Let's just go for it. I mean, this is a very graphic verse, and I don't want to get too grotesque, but he's basically talking about food. It goes in, it goes into the bowels, and it goes out. It is expelled. And literally the language, if you're into Greek, it's, it's kind of amazing how graphic it gets. The original Greek language of the account in Matthew says it, it, it is expelled into the latrine. We're talking about pulling over on the way down to Seward and going into the outhouse and one that's unclean, 
unclean, right? And you go in there and it's expelled there. That's ancient, um, an ancient latrine. That's what we're dealing with. We're talking about camp out expulsion. We're talking about gross. And he's saying, that's food. You're talking about food. You're talking about what's going in you and and you're, you're believing that what you eat or not eat or whether you washed your hands before you ate it, that that has anything to do with you mentally, morally, or spiritually. That's what I'm trying to debunk. This is, this is not religion that we're talking about. We're talking about your heart, something that comes out of you, not what goes in and through you. Functional eating. Whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then is expelled, it's moved out as waste. And this is not something that defiles you. Doesn't defile you. It's not anything to do with you being right with God. Paul called his religious righteousness in Philippians 3, what? Dung, excrement. That's what he called it. He wants you to be grossed out by the idea that you could try to make yourself right with God. By, by, by doing something, by trying to be something that you really aren't, where you've done nothing to deal with your heart whatsoever. Let's diagnose the right problem. So he's debunking the wrong problem. Now let's look at the right problem. The right problem isn't whether or not you're ceremonially clean. That's the wrong problem. The right problem is your heart. That's it. Christianity is boiled down to one thing. It's dealing with your heart before God. Has God changed your heart? Has he given you a new heart? Has he taken out your heart of stone and given you a soft heart? That's everything. Everything comes down to that. Your pivot point in terms of all of eternity comes with one question. What has God done with your heart? Has he given you over? I'm gonna leave you alone? Or have you repented and come to the end of yourself and been granted a new heart? A new heart. It's dealing with the heart. Verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? The heart. He's shifting from the physical to the spiritual here. He's talking about physical food. Now he's saying uh, that's physical food that goes down. But there's something that comes up. And what comes up and out of your mouth in words, and we're not just talking about words, but what is exposed by what you say is what's going on inside your heart. The condition of your heart. Is it given to God or is it given to the flesh? Who's in control of your heart? This is what defiles you, is what comes out of your mouth. Proceeds from the heart. This is what is defiling. It's the source of our sin. Everything that you've ever done wrong is because of this source, which is your heart. It's out of the heart. It's not the blood pump we're talking about. We're talking about, spiritually speaking, it is your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's the seat of who you are. It is the mission control center of your being. It is the inner man. This is the heart. This is the unseen unseen inside of you that God sees. And it is what is cursed by sin. You say, I'm not that bad. Society tells me I'm not that bad. Right? Right? I mean, in fact, a lot of times society will say you're born morally good and then you're the one making yourself bad or circumstances are making you bad or how you were raised is making you bad, how you're educated or lack thereof is making you bad, how you are, you know, how the the system is crushing you in a way that's making you bad. 
that's what's wrong with you is what's happening outside of you. But no, God and Christ here is saying, no, you were born a sinner and it's what's happening from the inside, not from the outside. And you're not born morally good. You're not born morally neutral. You're born morally bad. You're born sinfully bad. It's called total depravity. How bad are we? Well, when God let people go, And he let them go in this world to the point where he would bring water upon the world and drown everybody but Noah's family. This is what he said about them. This is how bad a heart can get if it's let let go to its ultimate end. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a person that's just given over. You say, well, not everybody is as bad as that. And that's true. And there's common grace where God holds people back from destroying themselves or destroying others with laws and with even the goodness of his provision in this world, even to unsaved people. But if God lets people go, that's how bad they really are. Je- uh, Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That means when you were being knit in your mother's womb, brought forth You were born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me in the womb. This is a baby who hasn't done anything. They're stillborn sinners, total depravity. God curses um, humanity, and the curse of humanity comes from the fall of Adam. Adam's sin as as the central figure and federal head of all of humanity sinned on behalf of all of us. You say, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Really? Well, Adam was without sin and he was given that autonomous freedom to make that decision. That was all under the broader plan of God's sovereign will, but under God's plan, there was an allowance for Adam to sin. And because he did that, the curse was, was um, pervasive through all of humanity. In Adam, all sinned. So he sinned as proxy for us. And so we are born under that judgment, under that curse, with a proclivity to sin, not just Coming neutral and, okay, I start to sin and I make myself worse and worse. No, I have a proclivity to sin. I am born a child of wrath. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It lies to us and tells us we are better than we really are. Instead, it is sick. Romans 3, this is what it looks like. Verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. None understands. None seeks after God. This is how people are born. All have turned aside. Together, they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. The tongues deceive. It's got the venom of asps or snakes under the lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And the feet are swift to shed blood. And the paths of ruin and misery. And in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. I mean, this is not marketable humanity. This is not marketable secular humanism. This is why you don't see this in the movies unless it's the villain versus the hero. This is the sinfulness of sin. This is what Joseph Conrad in um, English literature called the heart of darkness. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, you were dead in trespasses and sins in in which you once walked in the course of this world, following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working, working in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, by nature, children of wrath. 
Do you feel better about yourself yet? This is who we are, how we're born. James 1, 13 and 15, people say, oh, well, the circumstances got me. It's what God's allowed. That's what's got me down. Well, James 1, 13 answers this. Let no one say when he is tempted. In other words, oh, I'm pushed to the edge. I'm really going to blow up now. Don't ever say I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Sin doesn't go to God or from God. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's what's happening inside where you bait yourself to sin. Then desire when it's conceived, it's the gestation period here. It gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. You give birth to death if it's unrepented of. Verse 19 gives us the clear designation of what's going wrong inside our hearts. All of our hearts. All of the seedbed of this depravity is inside all of us. And it even is there today, even as born again Christians. If you don't have the spirit of God, it is completely left unbridled with capacity to do any manner of evil with no check, with no conviction of the Holy Spirit. As a born again Christian, you still have this depravity inside, but it is under and yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to fight it by the Holy Spirit. But this is the itemization of what's wrong with us, each one of us in our own hearts. We see this in verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now these are boilerplate categories of how we are sinful. This is what our heart mechanistically will do. It just will automatically do these things left to itself in a manifold number of ways. And this is sort of an outline you can um, put down on your bulletin to, to capture these categories. It's seven deadly sins that come from everyone's heart. Seven deadly sins. Now, you've heard the seven deadly sins of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. If you want to look back over there just to kind of glance at it, there's a lot of lists in the Bible and there's a lot of lists that have overlapping categories of sin. And even in Proverbs, Solomon lists six things and then no, there's seven. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, verse 16 of chapter six, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed, Innocent blood, there's murder, and we already saw lying and pride. A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that makes haste to run to evil. A false witness, there's lying again, who breathes out lies. And the one who sows discord, that's the, that's the slandering sin that we're going to look at among brothers. This is, the, this is the Jesus version of the seven deadly sins, in other words. Paul's got his own list, so does John in the book of Revelation. We'll hit that at the end. I don't want to leave any stone unturned here. This is a statement on the sinfulness of our own hearts. And why do I say this? To drag you down? No, because unless you hit the rock bottom um, part of the pool, you can't push back off into grace. You can't find Jesus if you don't come to the end of yourself. Coming to the end is how you find grace and you find the Lord. It begins with evil thoughts. This is where everything is. It's three-dimensional in our own minds. You think on it before you do it. You imagine doing it before you act on it. This is your opportunity to still kill it when it's private, by the way. If you say, if I'm culpable for that sin that I thought of before the Lord, what hope do I have? You have all kinds of hope because if you deal with your sin, if you try to slay the enemy within while it's still private, there is hope. 
There is an option, an opportunity to not act out in these other ways. If you act out in these ways, you have to repent on another level, perhaps even a more public level, a, a, a level of restoration. You need to make things right with other people. And the Lord's grace and mercy is there as well. But there's hope to deal with the sin that's within, the seedbed, the thought, the imaginations that, that come fiery in your mind that you have to deal with that are still violations of the Lord's holiness but are what we have to deal with in our own thinking. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, all of these things are listed as anger and lust in the heart and the mind in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It's there. Sin always begins in the imaginations. And to gauge how to deal with this, even in the body of Christ, is not always so easy to discern as to what to do. Um, at one level, you might know somebody who is wrestling with sin in their own life that's still private or still contained, almost like a, a cancerous spot on someone's body. Before it spreads, you can kind of leave it there and watch it, and you can talk to them about it or bring scripture or encouragement privately. But then when someone begins to manifest their sin more publicly, where it's affecting people, it's creating divisions or confusions, or uh, it is an example of immorality for other people, then it has to be dealt with more publicly, perhaps even through church discipline. It's how I gauge things. When something is localized and private, I like to leave it to the Lord and leave it to a person's own mind for them to battle and fight within their own heart. And that's where we all are. But when things get more public, then you have to deal with it according to the Lord's means, even within his church, with bringing, a lot, bringing accountability alongside someone. Second, murder. We move from evil thoughts to murder. What do I mean here? Well, homicide is real. People genuinely do kill each other. We know about that. You might say, I would never do that. I'm outside of that or exempt of that. But killing begins with anger. It begins with being mad at somebody. And these are slippery slope sins that you can move from being mad and angry to doing something or not doing something, and people can die from it. You remember Cain, who was the first murderer in the Bible who killed his brother Abel because he got jealous of God accepting his Abel sacrifice and not Cain. But you also have Moses who um, killed an Egyptian slave and was, uh, or killed an Egyptian as a Jewish, um, as, as a person in that moment because that, that Egyptian was beating up on a Hebrew slave. It was murderous was taking matters into his own hands. You have David who um, passively murdered Uriah the Hittite who pulled back his soldiers and allowed for, for Uriah to be killed. And you say, well, how bad is that? It was really bad. It's a, it's a version of murder where you are passively murdering somebody. David rationalized it probably eight ways to Sunday, right? He brought him in. He tried to give him a break and say, oh, go be with your wife, be with Bathsheba. So it would cover his own adulterous affair. And he knew that Bathsheba was pregnant already. He was wanting the blame to go on Uriah. Just make it go away. He couldn't make it go away. The sin kept exasperating itself. And he ultimately said, I have to have other people snuff him out. So he passed. Passively murdered Uriah. You have Saul who converted to Paul, who stood by over the cloaks that were laid down as a symbol of um, affirmation to stone Stephen. And you have Saul who is behind the murder of Stephen the martyr. Killing it all begins with hate. You say, I don't have that. Well, are you angry with anyone? Are you angry with anyone? James 1.20, the angry man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Who are you mad at? Even just a little. Who are you angry at? Anyone. 
Who are you in your heart saying, I'm really not up to forgiving that person. That person has gone too far. That person is in a category unto themselves. The Bible says to, to love one another and love because we've been given love by the Lord. That's why we love others. That's why we kill hatred. See, I'm not a hateful person. I would never do that. Well, I hope not because the Bible says, 1 John 2, 9, that if you hate your brother, you might say that you're in the light, but you're still in darkness. You can't be someone who harbors a grudge against someone. Think about that. Are you harboring a grudge against someone where you hate them? You hate them. That's murder in your heart. Something that was allowed to grow and fester in the heart of Cain. Do you remember Genesis 4, 7? I mentioned it before, but the Lord's accountability on Cain before he acted out in murder against Abel. God said, if you do well, will, not you, will you not be accepted? Meaning, will, you not, will your repentance not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you hang on to this, sin is crouching at the door like a lion. It's crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It wants to take you over, but you must rule over it. Again, we've talked about David's guilt, his depression, his digression, his desperation that allowed him to convince himself that it would be okay to have Uriah murdered. It all begins with anger and we have to repent of that. Number three, the third is adultery. Adultery, you see that. That's violating the marriage covenant. It's going outside of your covenant of faithfulness. It's marital unfaithfulness. And it's important to recognize that people do sin in this way and people are forgiven for marital unfaithfulness. But you need to recognize that when someone commits adultery, they probably almost undoubtedly have been committing adultery in their heart for a long time, a long, long time. That's the seedbed where you're feeding adultery in your own heart and you're coveting someone else's wife or you're coveting someone else outside of the marriage. And I don't just mean for the men. I also mean for the women. It's people who are flattering themselves or vulnerable and willing to go after someone that they should not have. It's been said that when someone falls into adultery, it wasn't a very far fall. What I mean by that is think of yourself as being on a ladder. And when you compromise and sin in your mind and in your heart, you're going down one rung of ladder, one rung at a time, at a time, at a time, till you get to the bottom rung and then you just step off and you commit adultery. Proverbs 6 and 7, I was looking at it this morning, Proverbs 5, 6 and 7, the man in Proverbs 7 who's looking through the lattice work. He's looking where he ought not look. He's putting himself in an environment or allowing himself to be in an environment where he sees a strange and bolsterous woman, a woman who would flatter him, a woman who herself is in sin, a woman who is viewed as the person who is alluring someone away like an ox going to the slaughter. Someone who's willing to compromise and hear the wrong thing and get into the wrong conversation, be in the wrong situation where it's like you're taking fire to your own chest and you burn yourself. And without those violent illustrations of an ox being slaughtered or burning yourself with hot coals, you might not be awakened to the reality of what goes wrong when you do something that you think feels so right. It's not right. Sexual sin. It's blindness to your own habits where you're losing yourself and you're going in the wrong direction. Fourth, tax on with this sexual immorality. This is the broader category, not just going outside of a marriage, but going into any level of immorality in your own mind. The word is porneia. 
Right there, we get the word pornography. Pornography is pervasive. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's accessible. It's one click away, one swipe away, one thought away. And it's not just what you're looking at. It's what you're looking at here in your own mind and your own imagination. Sin, sinning in the imaginations. When you're doing this, even at the lightest level, watching something that is inappropriate in a movie, in a streaming, in, in a commercial, at that level, you're eating away your death by a thousand cuts to your own soul and your own joy and your own relationships, your own marriage. It isolates you in your own sin. It makes you nervous. It makes you um, not a person who's clear-eyed and confident with the gospel. You sacrifice so many things by giving yourself to that kind of sin. And then when that sin is repented of and turned away from, there is joy and strength and healing that can happen as you forsake a sin and turn away from it. Remember the Thessalonians who they, they turned from sin, from their idols. They turned and repented from that to serve a living God. Idols are the picture of pornography. Idols are ancient pornography. They're images, pictures of of. of demigods and and thinking in terms of ways where you are exalting yourself. They're almost mirror reflecting back to something that is a facade and something that you believe will satisfy you that really would not. Immorality and pornography has been around forever. It's just so automized now in our own lives that we have to recognize that when we sin in this way, we are sinning sexually against the temple of the Holy Spirit, which God has made you as a believer. You say, well, uh, the pornography... It's, it's just boilerplate now. It's just what everybody's doing. So I'll just do that level. I'll just live at that level. Well, that's denying the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Can you imagine if you really were able to fly above the porno, pornographic allurement by the power of the Holy Spirit? If you were actually able to vindicate in your mind that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit and I can be set free from this kind of sin. It's true. It's real. God's power is that big. And it's important for you to set the standard where Jesus does, where he says, be holy as I am holy. That's where we live. And when we fall or, tr- or stumble or, or trip, you go tell someone, you go get help, you get accountability, you put other believers around you and say, this is what I've done. This is how far I've gone. This is how far I could keep going. This is what I need to be snatched away out of and brought back center with the word of God. Women are not exempt from this. Women look at things and they, they, they measure themselves and go, you know, I am, I am feeling less. I'm feeling inadequate. I want to feel better about myself. And so they will, they will allure people with seductive speech. They will, they will be duped um, by what men say. They'll be flattered into falling into sin. And all of that is still what needs to be repented of and held accountable, accountable to Do you guys feel better about yourself so far? Yeah, me either. Let's go more. All right, so theft, theft. You say, well, that has nothing to do with me. People are stealing stuff all all the time. People steal in small and big ways, in white-collar crime, crime, and even in um, just just different scams or different ways that they rationalize taking money that is not their own. Theft is the word clopi, which is where we get the word kleptomaniac, which is a habituated thief. Someone who begins to compromise by a slippery slope, a little bit more, a little bit more with discontentedness, greed, saying that person has what I would want or I deserve, and they fall into the love of money. 
And the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. You think that you're fine. You think that you've got everything that you need, but you want a little more. You say, well, uh, how do you pull somebody out of this situation? Well, sometimes it comes to a person being locked up or put away or, or judged or penalized. But what you want, if you're involved in any kind of embezzlement or, you know, where you're, you're taking money that you ought not have, you need to be open about that. And the more vulnerable that you become with people, I, I think the more forgiveness is found. Um, in Proverbs, it talks about he who covers, God will uncover, like ripping up, open a Band-Aid. Um, but he who uncovers, God covers. And people are gracious um, oftentimes if people say, you know, I'm not sure about this. This is something I did or, or a compromise that I've made. Can you help me out of this? Is there a way to make this right? Is there a way for me to um, reconcile this? And a willingness to be held accountable and to be open is what so often can pull you back before worse things befall you. Number six, bearing false witness. Bearing false witness. This is the word pseudo-martyria. Pseudo-martyria. False witness. You hear that word martyr in that, a witness. Um, It's a story that you're telling that is false. You say, well, I'm not good at making up stories. Well, you actually are. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We will tell ourselves something and redact a story and change a story so quickly for our own benefit without us even being aware of it that we'll begin to believe our own press. It's true. It's amazing where you can tell yourself something if you're in an argument with somebody and you're like, man, no, this is how it was. And emotions get involved and you begin to lie to yourself. And that's not the truth whatsoever. That's why a third party coming in often can say, you know, really, this is what I heard. And isn't this what you said? And then you can have this aha moment. And then the truth is there. It's lying. It's bearing false witness. It's a bald face lie, which the modernized version of that is bold face lie. It's telling something outright that's a lie or even a small little lie, which is still a lie. The Bible teaches that you lie to three persons at once when you lie. First of all, you lie to yourself. You're self-deceived. You're self-deluded, as James talks about. Uh, You are lying to yourself. And then secondly, you lie to someone else. What happens when you lie to someone else? You lie in three directions. You lie inward, then you lie outward to someone else. You're breaking trust. You're breaking a relationship. You're breaking a friendship. You're telling something false. You're breaking any credibility that you had before with them that needs to then be restored and rebuilt. Thirdly, you lie to the Holy Spirit. So you lie inwardly, outwardly, and upwardly. You're lying to the Lord. The Lord's the ultimate adjudicator of your lie. He's the one that knows your own heart. He knows what's going on inside of you. He can sort of bring you open and lay you open before himself and say, I know exactly where you're speaking the truth or you're lying. That's Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, Peter looked at them, and I believe they were believers. I think even though they were struck dead on the spot, each individually, I think they were believers. They were being brought home early for bad behavior. They were lying to the Holy Spirit. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You said that you were giving this much when you really held back that much. It wasn't about the amount that was the issue. It was the lie about the amount that was the issue. And it was the setting of of the early church where God wanted to set an example of a high bar standard of holiness and saying, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. The same people that took, you know, your husband away are going to take you away, Sapphira. And that's what happened then. Finally, the last sin, and this is really not a big deal sin at all. 
That's not the case whatsoever. This is actually, you know, a lot of times these lists load up the last sin as the worst sin of the whole bunch. But this is what J.C. or Jerry Bridges called a respectable sin in his book, The Respectable Sin. It's the sin of slander. This is called taking prayer requests for people because we want to pray for them. So let's hear all the dirt and, and uh, muck and mire about someone. This is the idea of tearing people down. It's the idea of um, just ripping people to shreds with your tongue. It's the idea of a, a, a fiery tongue that sets ablaze a great forest fire, as, Je- as James chapter 3 um, warns. It's the, it's the tongue that's like the, the rudder on a ship that can steer an entire ship it's that small little muscle in our mouth that can, that can eviscerate people and destroy people's character. It is in um, common law. It's known as the defamation of character, but this goes far deeper than that. Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. It's, it's a feeding frenzy in the church. Ephesians 4.31, all the sins that go before fuel what happens with our mouths. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger. There's some of the sins that are listed by Jesus. Bitterness, wrath and anger and clamor and then slander be put away from you. James 3, as I mentioned before, um, we both bless and curse our, our father with our tongues A great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, James 3, verse 5. It's a staining sin. It stains the whole body, James 3, verse 6. It sets the whole course of life on fire, a fire by hell. No one can tame the tongue. It's full of deadly poison. Gossip, gossip. It's a bad sin. Where do these sins come from? Out there? You're supposed to deal with them from something out there? You know where these sins come from? In you and in me. This is who we are. This is an important principle from Scripture for our church. We begin here. This is ground zero. We are sinners. And without a true Full acknowledgement of our sin. We have no way to grace. As an unsaved person, you have to say, okay, I've come to the end of myself. I need Christ to save me from this heart. Old things pass away. Everything is new. New creature in Christ. That's what I need. As a saved individual, as a born-again person who's feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you say, Lord, intervene in my life. I yield myself again to you. You are Lord of my life. Help me, God, to repent of these sins and to grow in grace. These are the categories that we need to not pull punches with. These are the habits that form in our lives and in our minds that we become blind to. And we say that, you know, everybody's doing it. So who am I to uh, be any different than them? I can conform enough to what God expects of me in the church, in my family. I can play the game. I can do enough to deal with this contamination and just kind of keep it at bay. I can follow my religious obligations. I can, I can do these things. And all of that mindset, watch this, suppresses intervening grace. God wants to give you grace. And he gives you grace when you come clean with him. 
When a child comes to me and says, I've done this, if they haven't fully confessed what they've done, then there's something that's still wrong within the relationship. But when a child says, this is what I've done, and you know about this much, let me tell you this much more, then now we're down to business. Now there's reconciliation. There's where you have power in your life, where you're telling God everything he already knows to be true about your life. Paul writes of a similar list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Listen to the list. The list is very similar from Proverbs to the words of Jesus to 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What does unrighteousness look like? Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, there's the speech sin, nor swindlers, there's the thieving sin, will inherit the kingdom of God. You don't repent of these sins, you don't go to heaven. You live in these sins, you're not a Christian yet. What about Revelation 21 when it's too late? That's what John said. Here's John's list. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, there it is, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You deal with it now before it's too late. It's the warning. What defiles the person? Not washing your hands? Hey, let's, let's just bring it to the heart. That's what Jesus does. Bring this clear, verse 20. These are what defile a person. All the list of the seven deadly sins. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Anyone. That's a big zero. We need to deal with the sin. What happens when you repent of your sins? I was talking to one of my kids and I said, repentance is this. You're walking one way and the Hebrew word is shoe. If you just turn and you say, Lord, change my heart, change my life. I'm gonna start walking this way towards you turning towards you in my heart. That's repentance is doing the 180. When you do the 180, look at the list again. The evil thoughts can become pure thoughts. Murderous thoughts can become loving thoughts. Adulterous thoughts can become holy thoughts. Sexual immorality thoughts can become pure, holy thoughts. False witness turns into truth speaking. You speak the truth in love. You are a thief and now you're a giver. Now you're a truth speaker. You are a slanderer. Now you are an edifier. You build people up in the body of Christ. You put off and you put on. It's not enough to dig the, the hole of your sin and dump it out. You got to fill it back in with truth and with obedience. You starve and then you feed. You starve the sin. You put it off and then you feed with truth and holiness. You say, I need help. Yeah, you need help. Don't do it on your own. Get into the community group. Get into the fellowship group. Come talk to me after the church service. I'll help guide you into some help and some accountability. You try to do it on your own, you're going to fail in fits and starts. Trying to live on the outside in doesn't work. You have to move from the inside out, repenting by the Holy Spirit, seeing the true source of your sin in that it is your heart. And once you recognize that, acknowledge that, then you can be rebuilt and be restored. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the truth. Lord, the truth does set us free, but the freedom comes by seeing the cost of our sin. And Lord, that it puts us in enmity with you, or we become enemies. We are enemies with you because of our sin, and then it's reconciled only one way, and that's through Christ. Pray that we can all point each other to Christ and live in the joy of the Holy Spirit and the freedom therein. In Jesus' name, amen.